It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. As many of you may know, Kevin and I appear on the new Wondery podcast, Families Who Kill, The Donut Shop Murders. The series examines the story of Sherman McCrary and Carl Taylor, two men who took their wives and kids along on a multi-state spree of rape and murder. Please go check that out and leave a five-star review if you like it. We were really thrilled to be a part of the show. Since the series premiered, a number of people have asked us where they can find our own coverage of the McCrary-Taylor family and if we intend to do more episodes on the case. Let's start with the first question. We did two programs on the case, and we decided that the simplest thing to do would be to re-release both of them together today. The first, The Donut Shop Killers, is our overview of the case. The second, which will take up the latter half of this release, is The Donut Shop Killers, Behind the Investigation. 
It features an interview with Don Williams, one of the police investigators who is crucial to bringing the McCrary-Taylor clan to justice. And no, we are not done with this case. McCrary and Taylor, of course, brought their wives along with them on their violent rampage. We discussed that last year. But they brought their kids and grandkids along too. And that is not something we really went into before. What did these youngsters see? How did it affect them? What happened to them after the police arrested all of their closest relatives? To try to get some answers to those questions, we talked with Jerry Nations, the son of Ginger Taylor and the grandson of Sherman McCrary. Jerry also generously shared with us all of his adoption records. We'll be sharing Jerry's story in our episodes coming out January 18th and January 25th. We also wondered about dysfunctional families in general, and just how exactly a family like the McCrary-Taylor clan can come into being. To figure that out, we spoke with Dr. Glenn Doyle, a psychologist and expert in trauma and addiction. That conversation will be a part of our episode that would be released on February 1st. But first, let's go back and listen again to the story of the McCrary Taylors and one of the men who brought them down. Content warning, this episode contains discussion of rape, murder, and violence against women. Also note that as usual, we'll be listing our sources at the end of the episode. It was around 10 p.m. on August 12, 1971, when the customer decided to make a quick stop at Winchell's Donut House. She found what she wanted easily enough and made her purchase. The clerk on duty was Sherry Martin, a friendly 17-year-old who planned to head off soon to study at Dixie College. But it wasn't an entirely pleasant experience for the customer. She saw two men there, sitting at a table, drinking coffee. One of the men said something profane, and she turned and glared at them. And then she walked out, leaving the men alone with a teenage girl. This was the moment they had been waiting for. About half an hour passed before anyone noticed something was wrong. A police officer happened to notice that Winchell's donut house was dark and looked closed, even though it was supposed to be open all night. He investigated and found Sherry's car in the parking lot, but she was gone. And so was all the money in the cash register, about $83. But the coffee cups the men used were still there, and one of them had fingerprints. They found Sherry a few weeks later, on September 4th. She had been shot eight times with a thirty-two caliber weapon while she was naked. Then, inexplicably, Her assailants had dressed her and wrapped her in a blanket. Her hands were tied together with her own nylons. Sherry's body was so decomposed that it was impossible to tell if she was raped. Her killers had taken her from the Salt Lake City donut shop and then dumped her remains 15 miles southwest of Windover, Nevada. In the weeks between when Sherry went missing and her body was discovered, another woman at another donut shop went missing. Her name was Leora Looney, and before she disappeared, witnesses reported seeing two men in the Lakewood, Colorado donut joint. Leora was found much quicker than Sherry. 
Her body was discovered just three days after she went missing. She had been strangled, shot, and raped. The crimes were similar enough that the police began to suspect that the same men were responsible for each of them. And that was a terrifying possibility. Because if they weren't caught soon, then they would surely kill again and again and again. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenley. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout Season 1 to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the Murder Sheet, and this is The Donut Shop Killers. Let's take a small step back in time and meet Sherman McCrary and his family. Sherman was 47 and lived in the small town of Athens, Texas, with Carolyn, his 45-year-old wife, and Danny, their 19-year-old son. His 22-year-old daughter, Ginger, lived nearby with Carl Raymond Taylor, her 38-year-old husband. Before settling down in Athens, the family journeyed across the southwestern United States, scraping together a living at whatever jobs they could turn up as ranch hands or at honky-tonk carnivals. But there was a problem. Sherman McCrary had a bad back that made it all but impossible for him to do physical labor without pain. So he needed to find another way to make a living. In 1971, he decided to turn to crime to make a business of it. He had some experience in that area. He had been found guilty of a robbery in 1962, and in 1965, he'd escaped from a prison farm. His son-in-law, Carl Taylor, also had a record. If anything, it was longer than McCrary's rap sheet. Taylor had been convicted for forgery, burglary, robbery, and escape. But Taylor didn't have much of a guilty conscience about his crimes. Here's what he told one probation officer. I know that what I'd done was all morally and legally wrong. However, all the money that I have taken went to support my wife and family. I do not drink to excess. I take maybe one or two drinks a day, but even then, not every day. I do not run around or anything of that sort. I spent all my time and all my money with my wife and family. 
Sherman's son Danny grew up in this environment. One of his probation reports said he was reared in a family in which criminality was a way of life. But he hadn't racked up much of a criminal record before 1971. His troubles with the law were relatively minor. He'd been convicted of breaking and entering autos and being drunk in public. And then there were the women, who, by all accounts, took a back seat to the men when it came to decision-making. Sherman's wife Carolyn stood 4 feet 11 inches and weighed a mere 83 pounds. A probation report described her a bit cruelly as very limited in both intellectual and social levels. On that same report, Carolyn wrote, I am guilty of staying with my husband when he committed robberies because I don't have anywhere else to go and most people won't hair because I don't have a kitchen and am in poor health or am not large enough so I stayed with my husband. It may sound crazy, but I love him very much. Her daughter Ginger who was married to Carl Taylor, seemed to have a similar attitude, telling law enforcement, I love my husband very much, and it never occurred to do anything other than to stay with him. I guess that staying with him and doing what my husband told me to do was born and raised into me, because I never really thought that there was really anything else for me to do. The family didn't come up with any super elaborate plans when they decided to embark on their spree. They would just clamber into a vehicle, perhaps one that was stolen, drive a long ways away from Athens, commit their crime, being careful, of course, not to leave any witnesses. And so they would go to places like donut shops, rob the places, and then force the clerk on duty into their car. After they drove to a secluded place, the men of the family tended to rape the young woman they'd kidnapped, sometimes in full view of their wives. Ginger and Carolyn never lifted a finger to protect these women. It never occurred to them to question anything their husbands did. Besides, as Carolyn once explained, these women weren't kin of hers. When the men finished with their victims, they would kill them. The family would then head back to Athens and stay there until they decided it was time to commit their next crime. Even with their frequent Texas interludes, the family maintained an active schedule. It was, for instance, Carl Taylor's fingerprint on the coffee cup left at the Sherry Martin kidnap scene. And the female customer would eventually identify Taylor and McCrary as the men she saw there that night. Taylor would eventually plead guilty to the first-degree murder of Leora Looney, and a jury would convict Sherman McCrary for his role in that crime. But that was all in the future. The family would not be identified and captured for months, and so quite a few more people would suffer and die at their hands. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, 
you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. On September 28, 1971, Elizabeth Perryman, a waitress at the Tuttle House in Lubbock, Texas, called the cab company where her husband worked at around 9.30 p.m. She said she needed a ride home. But the McCrary-Taylor family got there first. By the time Elizabeth's husband arrived at around 10 p.m., the restaurant was closed up, and Elizabeth was not there. $86 was missing from the cash register. They did not find her until December 19th. She had been shot in the head. A couple of weeks later, on October 17th, the family was in Mesquite, Texas, a suburb of Dallas. 19-year-old Gina Covey worked as the night manager of a Mr. M grocery store there. Forrest, her 22-year-old husband, brought her dinner and stayed to help her out until closing time. And then Carl Taylor and Sherman and Danny McCrary showed up. Danny would later tell the police what happened next. He said Taylor ordered him to drive to the back of the store. Seconds later, both of the Coveys were forced to enter the car at gunpoint. Sherman and Taylor repeatedly promised the young couple they would not be hurt and then Taylor told Danny to drive to a barn. Danny followed the order. Here's what he told police later. Carl and my father told the man and woman to get out of the car and go inside. I remember seeing Carl holding a gun on the man, and I saw all four of them go into the barn. Danny followed them in. I remember seeing the man and woman lying face down on the floor, and my father and Carl tying their hands behind their backs with wire. Carl got up and stepped back and reached into his pocket and got a pistol out. I got mad and walked back to the car. I heard a bunch of shooting and I could see the feet of the man and the woman, and they were not moving. I saw my father and Carl walking from the barn. 
Carl drove the car back to the house in Mesquite. It was late when we got back home. Sherman and Taylor netted about $125 from that robbery. Danny's share was 10 or $20. In plenty of true crime tales from the 1970s, an era marked by violence and serial predators, and a lack of sophistication around crime scene forensics, the cops would still be flat-footed around this time. But, despite the sprawl of jurisdictions, law enforcement agencies were starting to put the pieces together, identifying a pattern of violent robberies and murders against retail clerks. And they did fine work on this case, joining together to investigate these crimes. But the frightening truth is that sometimes, even when the police do everything absolutely perfectly, it still may not be enough to stop the slaughter. And so the killings continued. On October 20th, 1971, the murderer's family took 16-year-old Susan Darlene Shaw from the Mesquite Donut Shop. Searchers found her a few days later, floating face down at Lake Ray Hubbard. She'd been raped and shot six times. It didn't stop there. On November 30th, 1971, the family stopped at Neal's Beauty Shop, which was on a country road between Keystone Heights and Melrose, Florida. Bobby Turner and Patricia Marr, the owner-operators of the business, were murdered there. A customer found the shot-up, mostly naked bodies of the two women in a storage room at the beauty shop. But the family did take one hostage. Turner's 16-year-old daughter Valerie was in the shop that day, and they forced her at gunpoint into their vehicle. People discovered her body in the woods about six months later. And it happened at least one more time. On February 19, 1972, Sherman McCrary and Carl Taylor took Cynthia Ann Glass. She worked as a clerk at the Get and Go Market in Portland, Oregon. Much later, Carl would tell the police about it. The story seemed numbingly, horribly familiar to anyone who had been following this case. He said he and Sherman robbed the place and then forced Cynthia into their car. They drove into the woods. McCrary raped her, and then Taylor did too. Then the men made her get out of the car. Taylor had his gun on her, and Cynthia stared at it, frozen. Then they both shot her dead and drove off. There may have been even more victims. Authorities would speculate that the family could have been responsible for as many as 22 murders and it is easy to believe that they could have killed even more people than that. But we have told you about the murder cases we believe can most plausibly be connected to the family. In the early part of 1972, the family changed their method of operation. They pulled up stakes from Athens, Texas, and moved the whole clan to a couple of houses in a middle-class area near Santa Barbara. They still committed robberies in California, but now they were hitting places like grocery stores, which offered much larger takes than donut shops. And, for whatever reason, they largely stopped murdering and raping their victims. That may come as a surprise. We have this idea that serial killers continue their murderous rampages until they're captured or killed. 
But the reality is that there's no universal rules when it comes to evil men. The beginning of the end came for them on June 16, 1972. Taylor drove to a Giordano's market in Santa Barbara to rob it. Things went very, very bad, very, very quickly. He got $3,000, but he also attracted some attention. Patrolman Dennis Huddle came on the scene and began pursuing the fleeing Taylor. In desperation, Taylor commandeered a getaway car and started firing his weapon at Huddle. The patrolman was struck in the temple, and Taylor got away. Danny McCrary told the police what happened next. Taylor came to the house, and he come in, and he was scared up. He come in and was pretty white, and he had a few marks on his side. I asked him what happened. He said, I think I killed a police. So we asked him about it. I asked him to tell us what happened, and he asked me if we wanted any of the money, and my dad told him no, he didn't want none of it, wanted nothing to do with it, and that how it was. Meanwhile, back at the grocery store, Huddle was rushed to the hospital. The police officer would actually survive his grievous wound. The local police got to work investigating the crime scene and discovered the car Taylor used to get to the market sitting abandoned in the store lot. They traced it back to Taylor, went to his house, and found the stolen getaway car just sitting in his garage. They immediately arrested him and his wife, Ginger. Their next stop was the McCrary home. They arrested Sherman, Carolyn, and Danny as accessories to the robbery, and then searched the place. They found $2,000 in cash, a theatrical makeup kit, and guns. Ballistics tests on those weapons would tie them to the murders the family had committed. Their crime spree was finally over. The family did not, however, get convicted of every crime for which they bore responsibility. The authorities seemed satisfied to nail the men on just a single charge. No one, after all, could serve more than one life sentence in prison. Sherman McCrary was sentenced to life and 29 to 30 years in prison for his role in the loony murder and kidnapping. He ended up hanging himself in his cell with an extension cord in 1988. He was 62. In the note he left behind, McCrary said he was just old and tired of doing time. Carl Taylor pled guilty to the loony murder and is now serving a life sentence with the possibility of parole in Colorado. His next parole hearing is scheduled for May of 2021. It seems baffling that a serial murderer and rapist could even be considered for an early release from prison, but we reckon that California would swoop in on the off chance that Colorado deemed Taylor suitable for release. Danny McCrary got a life sentence for his role in the murder of the Coveys. He died in 2007. The women of the family got off a bit easier. Carolyn McCrary was ultimately sentenced to two years in jail after pleading guilty for accessory after the fact in the loony death. And Ginger McCrary made a deal. In exchange for testifying before the grand jury about Leora's murder, she did not face any charges for her role in that crime. Instead, she got a three- to five-year sentence for passing 33 bad checks. At the time of her sentencing, she indicated she planned to divorce her husband and begin a new life. 
The treatment of the women members of the family sparked quite a bit of discussion between Anya and myself this week. Frankly, we have completely different perspectives on it. The fact that the women sat back and watched passively as their men raped and murdered innocents is horrifying. Ginger and Carolyn bear a share of the moral responsibility for the fates of all of the family's victims. But it seems to me that the women lived in a nightmarish and emotionally abusive environment, that they were so beaten down that it did not even occur to them that they even had the option of standing up to their men and saying, stop. They are monsters, but they are also pathetic. And it seems to me that their share of the blame is much less than that of their husbands. I personally think that Kevin's view is far too lenient. To be clear, the men of the McCrary-Taylor family are responsible for their vile actions. Reading about all the suffering they caused, all the violence and terror they directed at young women just trying to earn a bit of money through hard work is nauseating. But it's also sickening to think that these two women could sit by passively, listening to the frightened cries of these victims, just doing nothing. It's one thing for a person to look the other way when they suspect a romantic partner is capable of bad actions. It's an entirely other thing to witness horrors like rape and murder again and again and take no action. To say that these women participated in the torture and killing of other women because they were raised in the sexist society, frankly strips them of all agency. Perhaps they were socialized to be more deferential to the males in their families. Well, plenty of women are, and few of those women sink to this level. In my view, Carolyn's quote about not viewing the victims as her kin was telling. It speaks to a coldness, an apathy toward anyone outside of the family. If I'd been a prosecutor in this case, I would have pushed for more time for either Ginger or Carolyn, or both. Because I just keep thinking about what the victims must have felt, trapped by this family, being brutalized by these horrible men, and then seeing these two women sitting there, just watching. Though this crime spree is largely forgotten today, it attracted a great deal of press coverage at the time. Some major newspapers did fine work on the case. For instance, John Kindle's November 11, 1972 article for the Los Angeles Times gave an overview of a probation report prepared on the family that we found very helpful. But perhaps the most impressive coverage came from small regional papers that covered the shocking murders that occurred in their area. Papers like the Lubbock Avalanche, the Bonham Daily Favorite, and the Longview Daily News all did exemplary work on the parts of the crime spree that took place in their own backyard. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of murder, rape, and suicide. This week, we're doing something a little bit different on the murder sheet. We recently covered the case of the McCrary-Taylor family, a clan of itinerant serial killers who largely targeted young women working alone at donut shops. Some of you let us know that you were especially interested in the case, and so we decided to dig a little deeper. We reached out to Don Williams, a retired lieutenant with the Santa Barbara Police Force. He is one of the last surviving law enforcement officers to have worked the case. At first, 
He wasn't sure what to think about us. But like any good detective, he did his research. I, I have never watched a podcast in my life. I'm an old-fashioned guy that can barely, can fairly, can barely do my emails. But uh, uh, when I when I Google, well, Kathy Googled you and showed it to me, and there was a list of shows that you had done, and they looked very interesting. And then when I hit that one about the uh, Winchell donut shop it just bang it just there i was right back into the case again this week on the murder sheet don and his wife kathy return to the mccrary taylor case and take us all with them my name is anya kane and i'm kevin greenley and this is the murder sheet a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, the murder sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout season one to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the murder sheet, and this is the Donut Shop Killers behind the investigation. crime which ultimately ended the clan's reign of terror was a supermarket robbery that went horribly wrong. Well, I, I was a de- detective and uh, I, I answered the call when uh, the information came out that the robbery had taken place and an officer was down. So I went directly to the scene. When I got to the scene, we found out that our officer had answered a silent alarm, and he had gotten to the grocery store uh, before the suspect, uh, later identified as Carl Taylor, came out of the store. He um, ordered Taylor to stop. But Taylor ignored him and took off running across the parking lot. Well, our officer was running behind him. And when Taylor got around into a residential area, he climbed up on a second-story balcony. And when the officer came around, he shot him in the head. A young employee of the store 
had also followed. And when he found the officer on the lying on the sidewalk, he picked up his the officer's shotgun and started chasing after Taylor. He noticed that Taylor tried to get in the car in a parking lot and then backed off and hijacked a woman driving through the parking lot. This kid uh, fired off several shots and blew out the windows of the car, but uh, Taylor was able to uh, get away out of the lot. What we didn't know at the time was that that car that Taylor had driven to the store had been left running in the parking lot. And a good citizen had passed by and turned the key off and put the keys on the floor mat. And that's why when he got to his car, he, he, couldn't, uh, he couldn't flee in it. We got sidetracked on the investigation of McCrary and trailers Taylor, because we developed a suspect who was wanted for other armed robberies in the area. And when we showed his picture to seven of the witnesses who had been in the store at the time of the robbery, they all picked out this guy as the robber. His name was Frank Dodo, and he was a con man and a crook. And and a little and a, a a town close by by Santa Maria had him as a suspect in the supermarket robbery that that uh, Carl that Carl Taylor had pulled because he looked so much like him and <laughs> the poor guy he he did everything wrong to make himself look like a Perfect. sure surefire killer. He was on parole, and he conned his parole officer into letting him use his car to supposedly go down to uh, Ventura, that's another town nearby, and apply for a job. So this parole officer let him take his car. Well, he never came back. <laughs> so, so what he had done was he'd gone to Los Angeles, and he had been going there regularly and uh, passing himself off as this boxer, uh, Carmen something, I can't remember that. And he'd go into these bars down there in Los Angeles and, and they, you know, they'd all hoop and holler there. So Carmen, that great boxer, and they'd buy him drinks and everything. And so by the time he started home, uh, he was number one suspect and, you know, and he didn't. He got as far as Santa Barbara when we had roadblocks up, and he was arrested. Well, it took about three days to get him cleared and checked out his alibi. Dodo felt quite grateful to Don for clearing him of involvement in the shooting of Officer Dennis Huddle. Suddenly, he became my best friend, <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't get rid of it. He called me from Las Vegas and say, listen, I, I'm running a couple of girls, and any time you want to come over and party, why, be my guest. You know? after you cleared it. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to repay it. <laughs> yeah. While he was in jail, 
he conned a, a dentist that was in there on sexual charges out of $500 and told him he could he could get him counterfeit bills <laughs> in the thousands, you know, that he could use. That dentist was an idiot, too. But, uh, <laughs> he sounds he like was a always, this con man. Uh, Do- Frank Dodo was his name, and he was always on the con. Oh. He just couldn't, he just couldn't, he didn't have any other aspirations. <laughs> Investigators now focused on the car the robber had left behind in the market parking lot. We found out the car had been purchased in Long Beach, California for cash by Carl Taylor, but he had given a false address in Dallas, Texas. We were kind of stymied for a while at that until we got a call from a Edison employee who was turning on the electricity at two houses that had been rented by McCrary and Taylor. And he, when he called, we immediately set up plans to raid the Taylor house and found it to be unoccupied. The lights were on, the TV was on, and clothing and stuff spread around, including papers, but they had gone. We later discovered they had fled to Athens, Texas. Police discovered a crucial piece of evidence in the Taylor residence. We found the uh, vehicle that he had hijacked in the, in the garage. So we knew we knew we had the right person. From there on, uh, the dominoes started falling down, and things started falling into place. Okay, picture this: it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. After leaving the Taylor house, the next stop was obvious. We then went to the McCrary house and interrogated and, re- and arrested uh, Sherman and his wife, Carolyn, and, and their son, Danny, and contacted uh, Ath- he, Sherman told us he thought he w- that 
Carl had gone to Athens, Texas, where he had relatives. So we had the Athens, Texas police uh, alerted, and they arrested Ginger and Carl. We went to Athens and brought them back to Santa Barbara. Meanwhile, we had put out the information on this family, and we began to get responses from all over the United States. We figured that we had a total of 22 homicides that they were responsible for, from Florida to Oregon, all across the Midwest. And that didn't come out to us because they were none of our our um, cases until the detectives from Mesquite, Texas came out and interviewed and found out that they were responsible for a killing in Mesquite, Texas. Don would later learn the details of many of those killings straight from one of the murderers. We um, went up to Folsom, me and my partner, and interviewed McCrary. And he detailed seven murders that they were involved in, including the one that you've used in one of your podcasts of the girl who was taken out of a uh, donut shop in, uh, I think it was Utah, I'm not sure. But anyway, we had used that, that particular scene in the movie where the two women, the two wives, had been in the back seat of the car when the two guys took this girl out and assaulted her and and killed her. What was it like to talk with Sherman and have him tell you all about the murders? Very easy. We had certain rules. He didn't want us to record the conversation. And he he was a big liar to begin with. But the the cases he told us about, we were able to confirm with the, with the jurisdictions involved. But, of course, he never did anything. It was all Carl. And all he did was ride along with him, you know. But that was a bunch of hooey because in the Mesquite, Texas case, he found a pair of, 46 size boxer shorts shorts. (laughs) and Sherman was a big fat guy. (laughs) Wow. Jeez. But uh, also uh, he made up excuses why the victims were shot with two guns. He kept telling us that that that's because he kept giving his gun to Carl who shot both of them uh, both guns into these uh, bodies, and that didn't compute at all. Bragging. But he was very friendly. But he wouldn't talk to the FBI because I think he knew there was so many other cases across the United States that they were looking into. So why did he talk to uh, you? We don't know. You're a good old He just, just sent notice to our department that he wanted to talk to the two investigators that he had dealt with. And so we immediately went went to Folsom Prison and, and had about a five-hour interview with him and where he laid out these 
seven murders in seven different cities. Did he did he give you much detail about those murders? Oh yeah. Yeah, he did. He also detailed many armed robberies that they had pulled during their nomad travels. Yeah, he he was very blunt about the the uh actually it was uh six girls and one guy. One husband and one of the girls. But disturbing, very disturbing. His descriptions were very disturbing. I just never, excuse me, 33 years in the police business, I had never heard anything like that, sitting there listening to them, to him detail how they took these girls out, what they did to them, and, and eventually killing them. Did he give a sense of, like, why they would kill these victims over such a little amount of money in most of these robberies? They were just evil people, a whole family. Uh, criminals to the hilt, but evil criminals. Right? I, 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 to this day, can't understand how anybody could be that bad of a person. You said they committed uh, other armed robberies. Do you have a sense of how, why sometimes they would kill people and other times they wouldn't? No, the only time they would, the only ones that he told us that they killed were girls working in donut and toddle shop type places where they would go in and get coffee and find the girl by herself. Uh, the only exception to that was the double killing in Mesquite, Texas of a husband and wife. They owned a little convenience store and uh, they they stopped there for cigarettes and they were, they were the two people were alone in the store so they just took them out but, yeah, robbed the store and transported them to, a, to an old barn on a farm that Carl Taylor had lived on years ago that's where they assaulted the lady and killed both of them. What were the members of the McCrary Taylor family like? They were like, <laughs> oh, an old close family that had no morals at all. And uh, the, women did the, the two women... Uh, Later on, gave us a lot of information. Did the uh, did the women of the family give any sense of like how they could just sit by and like watch their husbands do this? Oh, you know, uh, on that case that you had, where where you in on your podcast, where the, the women were present and watched it, the the old lady, Mrs. McCurry. She told us that she didn't go out and side with the girl. She sat in the back seat and read her Bible and prayed. Oh my God! I uh, I wanted to slap her out of the chair. <laughs> I can understand that. <laughs> but unlike so many of the cases going on across the United States right now, I was able to uh, control myself. 
barely. How does it affect you emotionally to work on a case like this? Still does. It, it must be really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Still does. Just talking about it again. Did, did you know the officer who they wounded uh, in Santa Barbara? Yes. That's a sad case. He was seriously injured with uh, brain damage. But he... He survived several operations and actually got back on his feet again, but he had no memory and it bothered him. And he would be walking around the streets of Santa Barbara, stopping people and asking them, excuse me, asking them if they knew him. You know, he'd only been married three weeks when it happened. So when we did the movie, he insisted on coming down because he wanted to see what had transpired. I tried to discourage him from it. And as a result, he came back to Santa Barbara and killed himself. I'm sorry. That's kind of hard on me. I'm so sorry, Mr. I'm, Williams. I'm so sorry. But it certainly was a story that should be told. Should. A lot of people, of course, how long ago it was, not very many people probably remember it. If it hadn't been for Columbia Studios making Trimbley huh? had the connection with yeah. Wamba. Yeah, uh, I don't know whether you remember, but Joseph Wambaugh used a re, was an author. He was a sergeant on the L.A. Police Department, and he started the television series Police Story. And they only used actual cases; they didn't make up anything. And somehow they got wind of our case, and they got a hold of my chief and. Ask him to let me come down and tell him the story. And they made a two-part movie out of it, a television movie. It was called The Odyssey of Death. <clears throat> Did somebody play you in the movie? Yeah, uh, Robert Stack played me. <laughs> he was one, one, of, one of my favorite actors. <laughs> I spent a lot of time with him, enjoyed it very much. I I was the uh, technical advisor on the film, and so I was there from start to finish of the filming. So what what was the experience of working on the movie like? Well, having never been involved in anything like that, it was uh, quite interesting. Uh, you know, you think of a movie as being start to finish. Well, that's not how they film these movies. They... They do them piecemeal. I mean, they may do scenes from the ending uh, uh, in, early in the uh, filming. Yeah. In your estimation, uh, how did Mr. Stack do with his uh, portrayal of you? <laughs> you know, there was a, he did a uh, news article, an article in the TV Guide, I think it was one time. Uh-huh. And he said it was the hardest party ever played. Because generally he played, the police that he played were deceased. 
And he said, when he, every time he looked up and saw me <laughs> just standing there watching him, it worried him. <laughs> worried if, if he was doing a good job. Well, he was. He did a terrific job. Was the movie accurate? Well, they took a lot of uh, liberties because, you know, this was a... Uh, we used the seven cases that I told you about as the uh, catalyst, and they were done over uh, a year's time. So they combined some of them. They took liberty in, in combining some of them, but the ones, but they, yeah, it, it was accurate. It just wasn't. Uh, it just wasn't chronological like it actually happened. Don's wife, Kathy, got the opportunity to make an appearance in the movie. I played the dead body in the movie. Huh? I played the dead body. Oh, yeah. My wife said uh, she got to play a dead body in the movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's wild. Uh, they had to pay her. Uh, uh, Five dollars. Yeah. Forty dollars. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I'm at shopping there. Well, we were, we were filming uh, uh, a case where a girl was... The one at the donut shop in Colorado. Huh? Lakewood, Colorado, the donut shop. Yeah, yeah, the Lakewood, Colorado. Well, that's what they call it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the extra that was to come... She did all the... Uh, they, it had to be a blonde girl, and, and they had her covered with a blanket because, uh, and her hair sticking out. And my wife had long blonde hair, and the and the girl didn't show up. The extra didn't show up, and they had to. They were holding up the uh, filming until until uh, the uh, uh, director saw Kathy sitting. So she had come down to watch him, and he asked her if she would be in that. That's her. <laughs> That's her. <laughs> wide open at that point of time. <laughs> I wasn't any doubt. It was very much alive looking into his eyes. Even Don got a cameo in the film. I had a scene in it. Too, with, oh, you uh, sitting at the bar. With, uh, uh, at, at the bar with Mark Peters. Yeah, he, he was, uh, he played my partner in it. Uh, and I had a, I got to sit at the bar with Drinking and smoking, your favorite thing. Yeah, yeah. It was a, <laughs> in those days, I I don't do either one anymore. But but I, I sat there with uh, Robert Peters and uh, Robert Stack. Yeah, Robert Stack. <laughs> I, I was sitting there at the bar with Robert Stack and Brock Peters, and uh, I got to I was I show my kids, you know, and her dad was an actor. What the was <laughs> some famous stars. You know? That's pretty but, cool that uh, a, a part. We could not find the film Odyssey of Death available anywhere to stream. But if you are interested in checking it out, you can find it on the Season 3 DVD set of Police Story.
Do you um, think that there's anything that, you know, as you mentioned, like it's not a super well-known crime today. Um, what what do you think people should take away from this when they learn about it? And, you know, what can we sort of chew on today, I guess, in terms of what happened here? Well, in the first place is there's some terrible, evil people out in the world. And no redeeming them. Yeah, uh, very little redeeming value, and uh, and families are involved in it, not just individuals. You know, all these girls were taken that McCurry told us about. They they all worked by themselves at night in these little one one employee donut shops, coffee shops. And uh, just wasn't safe on because there are so many predators out there. We would like to thank Don and Kathy for taking the time to talk to us and for making the effort to prepare for the interview beforehand. Yeah, I'm the only one on the investigating group that that are still alive. And uh, so I didn't have anybody to to, uh, uh, consult with. Luckily, I have but luckily, my beautiful wife had, had kept all that stuff and had it in chronological order in an album. And it was so easy just to go through from the start to the finish and make a few notes or to uh, remind myself. But I've probably taken up too much of your time now. You, this has been really, really yeah, fascinating. Yeah. We really appreciate it. We so appreciate it. I mean, we just appreciate you guys taking the time and everything. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place 
to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 